Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that it does just minister to our lives today, that it is living and breathing, and that it has an application for every life in this room tonight. And Lord, as we look at just the example of what it means to live holy lives, Lord, I know it's a word that many people shy away from, but Lord, you've called us to be holy because you are holy. Lord, I just pray we would learn from the example of this chapter what it means to walk with you, Lord, with lives that are sold out and set apart to you. Lord, that we'd keep short accounts with you, Father God, that we'd be people who are, who are constantly in prayer and seeking your face. So, Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would be our teacher tonight, that your will would be done. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Leviticus chapter 4, the title of the message is real simple, it's the sin offering. And as we continue through this Old Testament book of the Bible, again, I want to just say it's one of the most important books in the Old Testament. And the reason being that it's the first book that really explains to us the, the, the whole uh, picture of the atonement. Now what is atonement? Atonement is the substitutionary payment for our sins. We are sinners, and we cannot pay for our own sin. And Leviticus is the book that really explains to us what atonement is, so that when Jesus comes, we have understanding. It's also a book that emphasizes holiness. Now Genesis, as we looked at first, again, I, I, I take some time to get in some context here because I think it's important. Genesis talks about creation, it talks about sin, and it talks about the depravity of man. Then you get to Exodus, and they were stuck in captivity because of their own sin, and we see God deliver them out of captivity using a man by the name of Moses. We get to Leviticus, and they're no longer in captivity, but God wants to instruct them in how to live holy lives. So that's a great application for every one of us because God has called us that since we've been saved, He didn't just save us so we could you know, have the get-out-of-hell-free card and live like the world. He saved us so we might live holy lives. It's a, it's a guidebook, Leviticus, to those who've been newly redeemed, those who've been called by God. It speaks about access to God in the first uh, 17 or 18 chapters. It talks about the sacrifices that are needed for man to approach God. And then the last eight chapters is going to talk about how we walk with God. How to have that walk with Him and that fellowship with Him. The key word to Leviticus is, is holiness. It's the it's key lesson is the awfulness of sin. That sin requires a very heavy price. You know, it's been said that it took one day to get Israel out of Egypt and it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. You know, they had lived in Egypt so long that it became like Egypt. And as Christians, we can live in this world so long that we become like the world. We start looking like the world, talking like the world, sounding like the world. And Leviticus' emphasis is really about holy living. And we're going to see that tonight in chapter 4. Now this is the fourth of the five sin offerings. The first three were what, were, what are called free will offerings. The first one was the burnt offering. If you remember, it's a picture of Christ's total submission to the Father because they, they killed the entire animal, whether it was a herd or a flock or birds. And we talked about each one of those pointing to Christ. The herd being that He carries our burdens. The flock that He is the perfect Lamb of God. The birds, we know that they wrung their heads, which again, the crown of thorns upon his head. They removed its feathers. Again, they plucked the beard of our Savior. And they partially tore its wing and spread it again, a picture of the cross. We know that they skinned the animals, a picture of the fact that Christ was beaten for us. Then in chapter 2, you look at the grain offering. It talks about the perfection of our Lord. That he is, it talks about the, the use of fine flour, which is sifted, which means it's tempted and without sin. Oil is a representation of the Holy Spirit. Frankincense, the sweet aroma of the Lord. And without leaven, again, untouched by sin. Then last week we saw the peace offering. And the peace offering was in celebration of the fact that man now can have a relationship with God. Hey guys, here's the reality. If you're here tonight, God created you to have a relationship with Him. And you can do everything else in the world to try to find peace, and you're not going to find it. You can, you, know, you can go out and chase relationships and chase money and chase career. And you know what? You're never going to be satisfied because your flesh never will be. And Leviticus, as we move on, they talk about this peace offering. There's peace between sinful man and holy God. And that's only possible through the redeeming work of the cross. God created us to have that relationship with Him, and we can't do it ourselves. And so in the peace offering, the thing that happened with it is after they made the offering, a portion of it was given as food to the Lord, and then they would take the rest of it and celebrate the fact that they now had this intimate relationship with the Lord. And so, praise God for that, but here's the reality. The, the peace offering could not come until after the guilt offering, after the sin offering, after the, the offering of perfection, because without Jesus' death on the cross, without Him being perfect God, there could be no peace. And you and I could have no peace apart from Jesus Christ. And so we're going to pick up tonight, looking in chapter 4, at the sin offering. And we're going to see that all sin requires a sacrifice. 
I've said it before, I'll say it again. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission for sin. We can't pay for it ourselves. Well, ultimately we can, but it would be a weeping and gnashing of teeth and separation from God for all eternity. The sin offering here deals with what is called unintentional sins. Bill and I talked about this at length today. What does it mean, unintentional sins? You know what, I'm going to be honest with you. When I sin, I know I'm sinning. How about you guys? Don't you know that you're sinning when you sin? You sin you're not like, do you? I wonder if that was sin. I, I know when I sin, because the Holy Spirit, you know, Holy Spirit head slap, right? Right? There's conviction. And usually I know before I sin that I'm about to sin, and then I do it anyway. How many bear witness with that? I can understand what I'm talking about. So it's not just me, all right? And so when it says unintentional sins, what does that mean? And it says sins out of ignorance, or sins with, without totally understanding, without understanding. And you know what? I believe that that can happen, and we'll talk about that tonight. But the sin offering was given for sins that were done in ignorance. You know what? If I'm driving down the road, and I think the speed limit's 45, and I get to the end of the street, and I realize it's 25, I've been sinning in ignorance. If I'm doing things that are contrary to the will of God, and what I've noticed in my own walk with the Lord is the more I fall in love with Him and the more that I get to know Him, the more things that are sin to me. What I mean by that is I get convicted by more and more the closer and closer I walk to God. Oh man, that sounds like a bummer. You mean the closer you get to God, the more, the more convicted you are? The answer is yes. But that's because you begin to love and see the world the way the Lord sees it, and you want to walk in holiness because you're in love with God. And you want to be like Him, and you want to walk after Him, and you start to listen to His voice more clearly. So tonight we're going to see that this emphasis on the sin offering is that every sin that's committed must be paid for, with this focus on holiness. And again, contrary to these people out there that say, well, you know, once you've given your life to the Lord, you never have to ask for forgiveness anymore. I don't know if you ever heard of this guy named Bob George. He teaches this thing that, you know, once you pray and ask God to be your Savior, you never have to ask again because it's already been done. Except, you know, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, he talks about asking for forgiveness. And if you look at the chapter tonight, this is really written to believers. It's written to people that already have a relationship with God, yet he's telling them that there's a, still a sin offering. There's still a time when I must come before the Lord and confess my sin and seek restoration and a right relationship with Him. The Bible says that the law is a schoolmaster that leads us to the cross. It reveals our sin and our need for Him. And as believers, as we continue to grow, our conviction will grow. And again, we're going to see that there are different grades of offering as we go through this chapter tonight. We're going to see that the, the offering will, will go from the anointed priest to the whole congregation to the ruler leader to the common person. And we'll see that the, the, the thing that they offered was less and less, not because of the nature of the sin, but because of the ability of the people to make the offering. You know what? It can't be a sacrifice if it costs us nothing. It's not a sacrifice if it doesn't cost me anything. It's not a sacrifice for Bill Gates to give someone a dollar, right? That's not a sacrifice. It doesn't impact his life. A sacrifice is giving something that costs me something because I have to realize the seriousness of the sacrifice itself. So let's begin in verse 1, looking first at the sin offering of the anointed priest. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... And you know what? Every time I see that the Lord spoke to somebody, man, I like that. Do you know that God speaks to us today? God wants to speak to you. He wants to have an intimate relationship with you. That's the God that we serve. The Lord spoke to Moses, and that's an awesome thing, but He wants to speak to you. And I believe that He is speaking to us all the time. We're just not listening. Amen? Too often we're so busy doing what we're doing that we don't have time to sit at His feet and to hear from the Lord. Now, God speaks to us in many ways. He speaks to us through His Word. He speaks to us through the leading of the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us like right now when we're sitting in a Bible study. He can speak to us during times of worship. He can use other believers around us to share with us the love of God and the truth of God's Word, and He can speak to us that way. But so often we miss out on what God's saying because we're not listening. And here the Lord speaks to Moses, and here's why He spoke to Moses. Because Moses was listening. Moses was available. Moses was up on the mountain when everybody else was having the raging party down at the bottom, worshiping the golden calf, who was up on the mountain hanging out with the Lord for 40 days. It was Moses. And those are the ones that the Lord's going to minister to most and speak to the clearest, is those who want to spend time in His presence. So the Lord speaks to Moses, and how awesome it is that Almighty God would speak to man. And here's what He tells him, speak to the children of Israel. Now He says, I want you to take what I've given you, and I want you to deliver it to my people. And you know what? Isn't that what God has called each one of us to do? 
We spend time in God's Word. He ministers to us so that we might minister to others. We talk about the reasons that the Dead Sea is dead. The Dead Sea is dead because it has an inlet and no outlet. And if we just come to church and study the Bible and listen to Christian music all day and wear our Christian t-shirts and put our fish and our dove on the back of our car and, you know, we just keep getting fed, 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 fed and we never reach out to anybody, we're going to be as dead as the Dead Sea. The only way that we can really grow in our walk with the Lord is to be fed by Him and to, to take that and minister to others. And so the Lord spoke to Moses and He said, I want you to speak to my children. I want you to take what I've given you and I want you to give it away. You know what? I love giving ministry away. I love stretching people. I love it when someone says, hey, I really have a heart. Okay, let's do it. You're going to hear me say that all the time. You know, we ought to, we ought to you know, go to Mexico Mission. Okay, let's do it. Let's, play, let's, set, let's set it up. Let's go, right? I want to, let's stretch. You know, I would rather stretch and make a mistake trying to do too much for the kingdom of God than sitting on a pew waiting forever for lightning to strike and God to open up the sky and tell you specifically what to do. Amen? The Lord spoke to Moses and he said, I want you to speak to my children. And God speaks to us that we might speak to others. And he's going to give them instructions on how to live holy lives. He says, if a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which ought not to be done, if he does any of them. So if he sins unintentionally, we talked about this a moment ago, if he misses the mark because of ignorance or without premeditation. Now later, later in Leviticus, and then we get to Numbers, it's going to talk about premeditated sin. Just rebellion, where you say, I don't care what God says, I'm doing it anyway, and I'm not going to repent, and I'm not going to be convicted about it, and I don't care. And I'll tell you what, that's a dangerous place to be. Amen? That's a dangerous place to be. Now, when we sin, as Christians, we should be convicted, and it should drive us to repentance. But if we walk in rebellion and say, I, don't, I know what the Bible says, I don't care. That's a whole different category. We're going to get to that later in Leviticus, and we'll get into it heavy when we get to Numbers chapter 15. All right? And it says that you're turned over. Man, that's heavy. You don't want to go there. So this is talking not about total rebellious sin. It's talking about unintentional sin or sin that's done without premeditation. It's where a word comes out of your mouth that shouldn't have. Or it's when you cut somebody down and you weren't thinking about it and immediately you're convicted. It's that kind of sin. And that's what it's talking about. Unintentional sin. Breaking the commandments. Not the rules of men, but the commandments of God. And when we sin, even in our ignorance, even if we don't know it's sin, it's still sin. You know, that's the reality. What makes sin, sin? It's not sin because we know it is. It's sin because it is sin. Amen? Someone will say, well, I didn't know that was wrong. It's still wrong. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. You know, I studied to be a cop. That was originally what I was going to be when I was early in college. And that's one of the things they talk about is ignorance is no excuse. If you don't know the law, it's still the law. And the law is the law whether you believe it or not or know it or not. And God's rules are not based on the opinions of men or what we think or how much we know. It's based on the righteousness of God. Amen? And what he says goes and that's it. And that's the standard. And if we break that standard, we're in sin and there needs to be restoration back to holy God. Now, he talks here first about the anointed priest. It says, if the anointed priest sins. Now, if you look up anointed priest, this is the high priest. This is the most holy guy of the day. In this case, who might that be at this moment? Who would it have been? Who would it have been? Aaron. Now, but he's not talking about just the rules for today. He's talking about going forward. The high priest, whoever that high priest is going to be, if he sins, these are the rules, or these are the things that need to happen to bring restoration. If he breaks God's command, he acts contrary to God's will. He says, bringing guilt on the people. Man, this convicted me. If those who are called into spiritual leadership sin, they bring guilt upon their people. If they sin, they stumble others. You know what? Every time a pastor falls, don't you see many, many people whose walk with God is impacted in a major way? You know, the pastor falls into sin with a secretary or something, and everybody goes, oh, and half the church, people just, they give up and they quit. And now, now that's sad because they're following a man instead of following the Lord. But I want to tell you something. I would rather be run over by a bus than do anything that would disqualify me from ministry. I would, I'm serious. I'd rather die. Absolutely. Without question. Because that is so heavy to me. But you know, at the same time, it should be that way for every one of us. Because wherever you are, you're the only Jesus that some people are ever going to see. 
And you're the person that someone looks at and says, that person has a relationship with God. And if you were to fall, you would impact so many people, more people than you could ever imagine. The person that, you, that lives down the street from you that you shared the Lord with, the, the co-worker that you have, the, you know, the person that you, you talk to on the bus or wherever you might be, those people are going to go, what? Oh. And this high priest says when he sins, he brings guilt upon his people. He brings heartache to his people. It's heavy duty when the high priest sins. And there needs to be just an extra watchfulness in all of our hearts, realizing that our sin not only separates us from God, but it can have an impact on those around us. And it says here, bringing guilt upon the people, it says, Then let him offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish as a sin offering. So he needs to make an offering to the Lord. He needs to make a sacrifice for his sin, on account of his sin, to atone for his sin. So here's a clear picture of atonement. He has sinned, and now a sacrifice must be made to restore this man back to God. To bring this man back into a place where he's in fellowship with the Lord. He has sinned, he's been separated from God. What does sin mean, remember? It means to miss the mark. It means separation. Remember, it's an archery term. You take an arrow and you shoot it at a a target, and wherever that arrow lands, its distance from the bullseye is called the sin distance. And so sin is missing the mark. And the only one that's ever been a bullseye on this planet is Jesus Christ, because he's Almighty God made manifest in the flesh. So all of us have been sinners. And some of us have missed the mark by, you know, 10 feet, and some of us by 1,000 miles. But the reality is that we're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And it's saying here, because of this man's sin, that a sacrifice must be made. Now what's that pointing to? What's it pointing to, you guys? To the cross. It's pointing to Jesus. Because of sin, sacrifice must be made. It doesn't say because of his sins, he must say 57 Hail Marys. Does it say that? Does it say he has to crawl on glass on his knees to Mecca? Does it say that he has to, you know, keep 12 steps or do nine things or or go to catechism or have his last rite? Does it say all all these steps and then he'll be restored to God? It says no, a sacrifice must be made. He's a sinner, he's blown it, he's been separated from God, so now there must be a sacrifice. But wait a minute, this is the high priest. This is the most holy guy around. Sinner, in need of a sacrifice, no matter who he is. All the more reason, because this man is such a man. And not just any sacrifice, but a young bull without blemish, which means a perfect animal, without blemish. Who's that pointing to? To Jesus Christ. That's why Muhammad can't pay for our sin. Muhammad was a stinking vile sinner who needed a savior. Uh, Hari Christian, jo- you know, Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, all these religious leaders of the day, give me any one of them, sinner, 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 in need of a sacrifice. You can't be the sacrifice if you're in need of one yourself. That's why only Jesus could pay the price for us. And so this man was in need of a sacrifice. Even the most holy man of the day had to have a sacrifice, and it had to be a bull and it had to be without blemish, perfect. Only a perfect sacrifice can restore sinful man back to holy God. Verse 4. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Lay his hand on the bull's head and kill the bull before the Lord. Now he brings this bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Remember we were talking about this all through Exodus. So he brings it to the door of the tabernacle and he lays his hand upon the head of the bull. Now remember what laying his hand on the head signifies. What is it? Who remembers? Who remembers? You can speak up. It's okay. Don't only be shy once. It's him identifying himself with the animal. It's saying, this animal represents me. This animal is the one that's paying the price on my behalf. I'm laying my hand on the head of this bull because this bull is going to pay the price that I cannot pay. And ultimately, the bull doesn't pay the price. It's a sacrifice that points to the coming Messiah because only Jesus Christ could pay the price. But he lays his hand on the head of this bull and then he takes it before the, the tabernacle, this place where the burnt offerings would take place. And it's there that he enters in with this animal. Then he has to kill the bull before the Lord. Again, we talked about this, that the, the, the sacrifice of these animals was extremely bloody. And I know why, because sin requires a heavy-duty payment. You know, if you had to just walk by and flip a penny into a wishing well, sin wouldn't be that big a deal, right? 
Oh, I sin. Throw a penny in the wishing well. I mean, so what, right? You just, you just sin and, oh, I better, on the way home, better flip a penny in there. I know some religion has become that way. It's become this thing. I knew a guy that was sleeping with his girlfriend, and so every time after he slept with his girlfriend, he would drive by, you know, the, the, the Catholic church and run in and confess it to the priest and drive home and be absolved of his sin. He'd drive by there every day, every morning, right? Flip a penny in the, in the wishing well. He wasn't getting it. He didn't understand that sin had consequences. And so, you know what? If you're going down there and you're having to slit the throat of a bull, first of all, I don't want to be close enough to a bull to be slitting a bull's throat. I don't know about you guys, right? But he's slitting the throat of the bull, blood everywhere. Then he has to cut it up into pieces. Man, that doesn't sound like fun to me. Maybe you, want, maybe you have the dream of being a butcher one day and it sounds okay to you, but I, I just don't think that would be much fun. And I would think, man, every time I sin, oh, I've got to get another bull. Oh, man, I, I wouldn't, man, I, no, I ain't doing that. Hey, come do, no, I, no, I ain't doing it, man. I slaughtered no more bulls this afternoon. I'm done. I don't want to do it. I'm not going down there. I'm, I, got, I got blood under my fingernail still from last time. I'm not interested. But blood, it had to be bloody because there had to be a heavy price or people would not understand how awful sin was. And so he had to take this bull, this perfect bull, and he had to lay his hand upon it, and that bull had to pay the price. Now, the main difference between sin, the sin offering and other offerings, is what was done with the blood. Watch what's done with the blood, verse 5. Then the anointed priest, so the anointed priest comes, and what does he do? He takes some of the bull's blood and brings it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger, fingers in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Now remember, where is the veil? It's right in front of the Holy of Holies, which is right in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So this is in the very spot where they have the altar of incense. Those of you who are here during Exodus, remember it's that spot right next to that most holy place. Only the priest could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement and make sacrifice for the people. But when the high priest sinned, he had to go in and take the blood of this bull and sprinkle it seven times on the altar of incense. Now, the altar of incense signified prayer. Remember that? And it was a sweet aroma in the presence of God. It was constantly lit. And whenever he sinned, he had to go in and sprinkle it on there seven times. Now, why seven times? Seven is the number of what in the Bible? Perfection or completeness. Okay? And so, it was a complete payment. It was the perfect payment. It was a picture of the perfect Savior that would come. He sprinkled the blood on there seven times. He dipped his finger. I find it interesting. That what was the law written with? The what of God? The finger of God. And what does the law do? It reveals our sin. And now we see the high priest, who's the, the one who intercedes between sinful man and holy God. He represents God to the people. And what does he use to pay for that very sin that, was the, that the law revealed? His finger. I find that interesting. Again, it's not by chance in the Bible that the finger of God wrote the law of God, and now with his finger he's, he's the, sprinkling the, the blood that's paying for the very sins that the law revealed to him. Now the veil entered into that most holy place. And remember the Bible says in Hebrews that the veil is his what? It's his flesh. So the veil is Jesus Christ's flesh. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn. That's why you and I can pray today, anywhere, anytime, and enter into God's presence. Praise God for that. We don't have to bring bulls to church anymore. Thank you, Jesus. I'm glad we're not having, you know, we'd be having some serious tri-tip on, on Sundays, right? I mean, I don't, I'm glad we're not doing that. I'm glad that the sin's been paid for. I'm glad that the veil is his flesh, but when, his, when he was torn on the cross, the veil was torn, that you and I can enter into that most holy place. And so we see here that the priest comes. Verse 7, And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So the priest comes in and puts some of the blood on the horns of the altar. And remember that the burnt altar and also this altar of incense had four horns on them both. And the horns was what they would, in the, with the burnt offering, they would tie the animals down with it. You know, animals don't want to get burnt. That's probably not something they're really like excited about, okay? And so they would tie the ant these sacrifices down sometimes when they would slit their throats. They would tie them down. Now it's interesting that he takes the blood and he puts it on the four horns. When Jesus died on the cross, there were four points on the cross. And the blood that he sprinkled on the four horns would be blood that you would see on all four corners of the cross, right? The top part of the cross, the blood from his head where they pierced his head. 
with the crown of thorns. On both, side, on both hands, the blood was going through his hands and bleeding upon the wood of the cross. They put a nail through his feet, and there was blood at the foot. So all four corners had blood. And isn't it interesting that on all four horns, they put blood as a representation of their sins being paid for. Why? Because it points to Jesus Christ. You've got to remember that this is about 1,400 years before Jesus came to earth. How awesome is this? Don't you love the Bible? The Bible rocks, okay? I mean, you look at it, and you see so clearly, and then here's the fulfillment all these hundreds of years later, and I, Muhammad didn't fulfill this, and no other man could, no other man did. You know, I don't know if you heard this morning, they, they had read this thing supposedly for Saddam. He's talking about how God will, bring, God will bring vengeance, and God will do this, and God will do that, and I'm like, well, yeah, amen, God is gonna, but it ain't the God you're talking about. God is in control, and God is faithful, Amen. And Saddam's been jamming a false god down his people's throat and trying to get them to believe in Muhammad. Well, Muhammad's dead. And Muhammad is not the god you're looking for. It's Jesus Christ and crucified and risen from the dead. Amen? And so we see here that these horns point to Jesus. He's sprinkling the blood according to, the, to, to what God has called him to do, not without full understanding. And remember, the altar of incense was a place of intercession. And it produced a sweet aroma in the presence of God. Now, it's interesting to me that... He's making sacrifice, but it says it's a sweet aroma in God's presence. Sacrifice. You know why it's a sweet aroma to him? Because he sees the end result. The end result is not just the shedding of blood of a bull. The end result is that Dave Johnston can go to heaven. Amen? The end result is that each one of us can have a personal, intimate relationship with God. And that's why it's a sweet aroma to him. That's why it pleases him to see the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. Not because he loves the shedding of blood, but because he loves the remission of sin. Because he loves the restoration of sinful man back to holy God. Whatever it costs, it's worth it. What would I pay to bring, be able to save one of my children's lives? What would I pay? You parents, what would you pay? Everything I have. What do you want? Take it. House, take it. Health, whatever. When you want my right arm, take it. Whatever I have, I'll give it to you if it will save the lives of my children because they're worth it. They're, they're more valuable to me than anything I could possess. Well, the Bible says that we are more valuable to Him than anything. We are His treasured possession. And so it's a sweet-smelling aroma to Him when there's the shedding of blood because He sees the end result that it restores His children back to fellowship with Him. He said, these are my kids. Whatever it costs to, give, to allow them to have that relationship with me, it's worth it. Praise God, amen? And he sent his son to suffer and die that you and I might have eternal life. The rest of the blood was spilled at the place of sacrifice. He would take it and he would pour it out on the ground under the burnt offering. at the port. Now it's interesting to me that the blood was poured out at the place of sacrifice. Now when, we, when you see pictures of Jesus on the cross, let me clue you in. It was a lot worse than that. You, know, you see Jesus on the cross and he's got a little trickle of blood going down his face. Or... He was scourged, which means he didn't have any skin left on his body. His organs were showing. It said he was beaten so bad that he was beyond recognition. His own family wouldn't have recognized him. Some people think the reason they put Jesus, that he was the king of the Jews, and put his name above uh, on the placard is so people would know it was him because he was beaten so bad nobody could have possibly recognized him. And that's what price he paid. And that's how much blood he shed. And it said they took the rest of the blood and they poured it out where the sacrifice was made. And when Jesus died for us, all the blood of our Savior was poured out in that spot. There was blood everywhere because of the awfulness of sin and because it required a heavy price to restore us back to holy God. Jesus Christ is that perfect Savior, Lord, God, and King. And thank you, Lord, for suffering and dying for a guy like me. And it says, verse 8, And he shall take from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them by the flanks, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys it shall remove. Now this sounds like a lot of fun. So you, you slit the bull's throat, then you get to cut it open and start taking livers out, and cutting out the fatty lobe, and oh man, that, that'd be real fun. And so they take that part out. Now the reason they cut that part out, Again, the awfulness of sin, but it's also supposed to be the best part of the animal. And they take that portion, and what do they do with the best part of the animal? They give it to the Lord. They give Him the best. You know what? That should be an example to us. May we give the Lord of our best. Amen? Not give Him what's left. 
Not give them the last 10 minutes of my day before I'm drooling on my Bible and I'm trying not to nap while I'm reading it, right? You know, giving God of our first fruits, giving God the best that we have. He gave us His best. We should be giving Him our best as well. Verse 10. And it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering, as it was taken. Same thing they did to the peace offering, they did now to the sin offering. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering. So using that same procedure, the priest sacrificed the very best portion, again offering it to the Lord. Verse 11. But the bull's hide and all his flesh with its head and legs, its entrails and its offal, which is basically all its major organs, the whole bull he shall carry outside of the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn it on wood with fire. Now, I want you to see this. Remember, hundreds and hundreds of years before the cross. What did they do to Jesus Christ after they scourged him, after they had that mockery of a trial? Where did they take him? Outside of the city. I've been there, Golgotha. They take him outside of the city, outside of the gates, and there they crucified him. It says here they took the entire hide, the rest of the bull, and they carried it outside of the gate. They carried it outside of the camp. A picture of Jesus being carried outside of Jerusalem, and they burned him on the what, does it say? The wood. A picture of what? The cross. Just as the bull was carried outside its full carcass and then was burned on the wood outside of the city gates, so too Jesus was taken outside of Jerusalem and was placed upon the wood where he was sacrificed for you and I. How do people not see Jesus in the Old Testament? What book are they reading? And they're not reading it. Because, you know what, the Bible is so clearly Jesus, 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 every chapter. If you read the Bible, you're going to see him all day long. And people don't see him because they don't open the book. We had somebody call today, if you're here tonight, God bless you. But somebody called and said, yeah, you guys having a study night? Oh, yeah, what do you got? Oh, we're teaching Leviticus. Oh, that sounds like fun. And, you know, the reality is, you tell people you're going to study Leviticus, they're like, ooh, okay, Leviticus, right? I mean, that sounds real exciting, doesn't it? People go, oh, man, I, and when you start in, like, you know, when you get to, like, 1 Samuel, give me a call back when you're getting up to something good, right? I mean, because people don't go to Leviticus, but can you see how clearly and how important this is to the Bible? Can you see how significant it is to understand what these sacrifices point to? To understand that the atoning work of Christ, you won't fully understand it if you don't study the book of Leviticus. Because it is so clearly a picture of our Lord and our Savior. And then it said, Carry it outside of the camp and burn it on the wood with fire, where the ashes are poured out and shall be burned. Fire is a picture of trials and torment. And Jesus endured torment on our behalf. He was scourged and he was beaten and he was mocked. So that's for the high priest. If he sins, those are things he must do. Now verse 13, Now if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they've done something against any of the commandments of the Lord and anything which should not be done and are guilty, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a young bull for the sin and bring it before the tabernacle of meeting. So when the whole congregation, when they sin corporately and they somehow are not, they don't understand that it's wrong. They don't understand that it's sin. They do it out of ignorance or they do it unknowingly. It says when they become aware of their sin, then they are to make sacrifice. You know what? That's a picture of what happens to us as Christians. When do we become aware of our sin? The Holy Spirit convicts us. Amen? There's things that you've done and maybe you've done them for years and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's like, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? There's things I don't do today that I did a year ago or two years ago or three years ago where that was okay. And, and if I told you what they were, you might think, well, that's not that big a deal. But if the, if the Holy Spirit's convicting me, it is a big deal. Amen? And so this is what happens. is They don't understand, but as soon as they're convicted, they must make sacrifice. As soon as I'm convicted of the sin in my life, as soon as I realize that I'm not walking in total holiness, if I'm not walking in the sin of God's will, it should drive me to my knees in a place of saying, Lord, please forgive me. And in this case, it drives them to the place of saying, you know what, we need to make sacrifice. We've blown it. We've been outside of God's will. We just now understand that. You know what, again, the closer you get to the Lord, the more you're going to realize that certain things just aren't healthy. They're not helping me grow in my walk with the Lord. You know, it's getting to the point where if it doesn't draw me closer to God, I don't want nothing to do with it. And I'll tell you what, in this world, that's going to limit a lot of things. It's going to let, you know, you'll never go to another movie, you'll never watch TV again, you won't, I mean, you won't be doing anything, right? But here's the thing, God knows and God gives us 
conviction that he wants for us to have right now. And here's the hard part. Don't give your, try to give your convictions to somebody else. You know, if it's clearly in the Word, then, you know, you want to encourage your brother. But sometimes, you know, I've heard people say, you know, if you don't, if you don't homeschool your kids, you're going to hell, you know. You know what I mean? I mean, people have these convictions. And homeschooling's wonderful. And if you're homeschooling your kids, I encourage you to do that. I think it's great. But, you know, some other people might have that, not have that conviction. Amen? And so we don't want to put our convictions on other people. We just want to be obedient to the conviction God's put on our heart. And these guys, when once they're convicted, they needed to bring that sacrifice. Verse 15. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Then the bull shall be killed. Why did the elders lay their hand on the bull? To identify the fact that, yes, again, this bull was a representation of all the people who had sinned. And they're saying, this is the sacrifice on our behalf. Identifying themselves with the sin and the realization that the, the bull had to be slaughtered and sacrificed. Verse 16. The anointed priest shall bring some of the bull's blood to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his fingers in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in the front of the veil. The same thing again. And that right in front of the veil, that most holy place, he sprinkles the blood. The blood is sprinkled on the ark of the covenant on the day of atonement. Here they're sprinkling the blood every single time there's conviction for sin of either the high priest or the whole congregation. They come in and sprinkle that blood on the altar of incense as a, a way of restoring fellowship with holy God. Now you're going to see that these procedures are exactly the same as happened with the high priest. So I'm just going to read through them. Verse 17. Then the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil, and he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, again a picture of the cross, which is before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the meeting. And he shall take all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. Again, giving God the best of the sacrifice. Sprinkling the blood, picture of the cross, giving God the best of the sacrifice because it all belongs to Him. Verse 20, And He shall do with the bull as He did with the bull as a sin offering, thus He shall do. So the priest shall make atonement for them. Now the priest went in and, made it and, and sprinkled the blood for himself, but now it says the priest makes atonement for the people. The people could not make atonement for themselves. The people could not pay for their own sin. The people were called to bring in the, the animals we're going to see here in a minute. They would bring the animal in, and they would slit its throat to see the awful price of sin, but then they could not make the sacrifice themselves because they had to see that they could not themselves be restored back to perfect God. Somebody had to intercede on their behalf. Somebody had to make atonement for them. And in this case, it was the high priest who made atonement for their sin. High priest is a picture of who? Jesus Christ. Who's the high priest right now? It's Jesus. He's our great high priest, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us daily. That's what the Bible says. And so it's a clear picture that, hey, we can't do it ourselves, so we must have the priest come, the high priest, and take the blood and sprinkle it on our behalf so that our sins might be paid for. But we can't do it because we're sinners. Now, I said this last week, and my heart is not to offend people, but we don't need priests anymore. Amen? Amen? We don't need priests anymore. We don't need anybody to intercede on our behalf. We don't need some man sitting in a box telling us how many prayers to pray so we can be forgiven. Why not? Because Jesus said, Tatalistai. It is finished. The price has been paid. And when we start pouring works upon the work on the cross, we're saying Jesus was not sufficient. Amen? So there were priests in the Old Testament, and they've carried that on past Christ, and that's a huge mistake. Call no man father, save my father which art in heaven. Amen? We don't have any other fathers anymore. We don't have priests anymore. We don't need them. Why? Because Jesus Christ is sufficient. He paid it. Too much bondage and all that stuff, right? And I'm talking about all these different religions that have priests and fathers and all these people, and you've got to go to them, and then they intercede for you. The veil's been torn. You can enter in. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? I'm saved because of Him, not because some man tells me what to pray. The guy's a sinner himself, man. I need to be praying for him. I don't need him praying to tell me what I need. I need praying for that guy, right? He needs to go enter into the presence of the Lord. It says, Then they shall carry the bull outside of the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly. They take it outside the camp, picture of Christ again, outside of the city, and there they put it on the wood, picture of the cross, that it might pay the price. 
Sin offering for a ruler, verse 22. When a ruler has sinned, or someone in authority, and done something unintentionally against any of the commandments of the Lord his God, and anything which should not be done, and is guilty, or if, he, or if his sin which he has committed comes to his knowledge, he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a male without blemish. So now we're seeing that the offerings are getting less and less, not because the, the sin is less and less, but because the person's ability to give becomes less and less. For a nation, they give a bull. For a high priest, they give a bull. But for this man, they give a goat. Okay? The term scapegoat, remember confessing the sins. The goat carries the sins away. So the goat is going to take his place, and the sins of the man will be placed upon the goat, and the goat will have to suffer and die in his place. Now it says here, if he is guilty, and if he is guilty, he's guilty whether he's aware of it or not. He doesn't know that there's sin, it's unintentional, still guilty. I've told you many times, when I, get on, when I talk to people about the Lord, one of the first things I try to do is I always try to get them to the cross. We can chase all the other stuff all day long, and, you know, and that's fine. I'm happy to talk to them about second law of thermodynamics and where did Cain get his wife. And, you know, I'll talk to you about that stuff, that's fine. But here's the reality. I've got to get you to the cross of Christ. That is Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen from the dead. That's the answer. And you know what? Before you'll see your need for a Savior, you've got to realize that you're a sinner. And so one of the first things I'll always do is try to get people to understand, you're guilty. Right? Until I see that I'm a sinner, I'll see no need for a Savior. I'm a pretty good guy. God grades on a curve, right? If Osama bin Laden's on one end and, you know, and, and Mother Teresa's on the other, I'm probably closer to her than Saddam Hussein, so I'll probably be okay. God grades on a curve. If top half gets in, I'm probably up there somewhere, right? And the reality is we need to see you're guilty. You are guilty. You're found wanting. And you're in desperate need of a Savior. And until we see that, we'll see no need for a Savior. So let me just make it real clear to you guys. You're all guilty. Amen? So am I. All right? We're all guilty. But the good news is, price has been paid. The same judge that put the gavel down and said guilty, took his robe off and went to a cross and suffered and died to pay the price, the fine that you and I couldn't pay. Amen? And so we see here that he's pointing to the fact that he is guilty whether he knows it or understands it or not. Verse 24. Once he understands the guilt, it says he shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it at the place where they kill the burnt offerings before the Lord. It is a sin offering. So he takes it again, laying his hand on its head, identifying himself with it. He kills it. He has to slaughter it. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, and pour its blood at the base of the altar of the burnt offering. Once again, a picture of the cross, because only through the cross can this man's sin be forgiven. He shall burn all its fat on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven. Notice, atonement for his sin, and then forgiveness. There must be atonement for sin, and then forgiveness. Price paid, we accept it, and then we've been forgiven. Not until. That's the order it has to be in. Almost done here. Verse 26. Verse 27. If anyone, if anyone of the common people, and again, now we saw the ruler, now we're going to look at the common people. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally by doing something against any of the commandments of the Lord in anything which ought not to be done and is guilty, or if his sin which he commits comes to his knowledge, then he shall bring as his offering a kid of the goats, a female without blemish for his sin which, is commit, which, ha, which he has committed. So now we, we go on to this common person, the everyday person. Literally the word common people there is people of the land. And if they in ignorant sin and they are found guilty, and their sin comes to their knowledge, then they need to make sacrifice. Again, they need to realize they're sinners before they'll see their need for a Savior. When they realize it, then they have to take, they're to take a goat, and they are to sacrifice it. Now remember, how heavy duty this would be. How would that walk be, walking the goat from your house down to the place where you're going to slit its throat? That'd be lots of fun, wouldn't it? Now, even if you're a, you know, all right, come on, right? And usually they would take a goat that was one of their own. It was domesticated. That's the word they would use. So they either purchased it from someone else or it, was, it belonged to their, in their home. It was out of, out of part of their property or whatever. And they have to go out and find the best one. Examine and look and find the best one of all their goats or their lambs, whichever it may be. 
And then they would find the best one, and they would bring it in, and usually they would bring it into their home for three or four days to examine it to make sure that it was perfect, that it wasn't sick. Now, during those three or four days, what do you think all the kids in the house are doing? They're playing with the lamb, and they're petting it, and they're petting the goat, or whatever it might be. And now the day comes, and you've got to take that thing and put a rope around its neck and drag it down to, to the place where you're going to slit its throat. This was not easy. And the reason it wasn't easy is because, again, people needed to see that sin was awful, and it required a heavy-duty price. It wasn't flipping a penny in a wishing well. It was heavy. And they needed to see that and see their desperation and their need for a Savior, that they might walk in holiness. Why is he pointing all this out to them? He's pointing this out to them. We're going to see this as we continue on. That God has called us to live holy lives. Be holy, for I am holy. Now, here's the good news, you guys. If you're born again, did you know that you are holy? Did you know that? That's what the Bible says. So you're a holy Dan or a holy Randy or a holy Mike. or You're holy. So the Bible says, not because of what we've done, but because of what he did for us on the cross. Amen? That's who we are. But he says to walk in holiness and to be holy. And what he's telling the Levi, look, if you sinned, it's gotta be, there's a price that's got to be paid. Before there can be restoration back to fellowship, there must be sacrifice. But praise God for those of us living after Jesus Christ came that the price has been paid. He shall lay his hand on the head of the offering, verse 29, and kill the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the, on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar. The horns are a picture of what, you guys? The cross. Why? Because the cross is necessary for sin to be paid for. And lastly, it says, He shall remove all its fat. As its fat is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering, the priest shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma to the Lord. Again, heavy duty, a sacrifice, bloodshed, fat, fat cut out, burnt on the altar. In the bull's case, hide, carried outside of the city, burnt. Major ordeal, blood everywhere, but a sweet aroma in the presence of God. Why? Because it restores his children back to relationship with him. And it's worth it in his eyes. Whatever it costs, it's worth it. That's how valuable you are to God. And then lastly, the same thing with a lamb. It says, verse 32, If he brings a lamb as a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. Again, perfect, must be. Then he shall lay his hand on its head, identifying himself with it, of the sin offering, and kill it as a sin offering at the place where they kill the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger, put on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, pour all the remaining blood at the base of the altar, he shall remove all its fat, the best of the sacrifice. As the, as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering, then the priest shall burn it on the altar according to the offerings made by fire to the Lord. So the priest shall make atonement for his sin and his, and, and that he has committed, and it shall be forgiven. So there must be atonement. The atonement is made by the priest. High priest is pointing to Jesus Christ. He's putting blood on the four horns, a picture of the cross. They're taking the carcass of the animal and carrying it outside of the city, a picture of the crucifixion. They're putting it on the wood, a picture of the cross. It's a perfect lamb, a picture of Jesus Christ. It's without blemish. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Man, this is so clear. And you know what? It's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Amen? He paid it all. He did it all. I'm so glad we live in New Testament times instead of back then. So in conclusion, God has saved each one of us if you've given your life to the Lord. And He's called us to live holy lives. Holy and set apart to the Lord. But we must allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct and also to examine our lives. All men and women, every single one of us, are, are going to be standing before God one day. And we need to realize that that there has to be that constant desperate need between us, with us for God. Are you desperate for God, you guys? I mean, are you desperate to know Him? I mean, is it the, mo is it the passion of your life? Or did you come tonight because you were at your friend's house? He's like, I'm going to church. All right, I'll go. I mean, you know, here's the reality. Is it the passion of your life? Because you know what? It was His passion to restore sinful Dave back to holy God. And it's His desire to have an intimate relationship with you. And He wants us to have that same passion and love for Him. We need to realize our constant need for Him. That at salvation we were justified. It's finished. But now we're in the middle of what is called that sanctification process. We're all still works in progress. The Bible says, He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So how do you have that intimate fellowship with the Lord? How do you continue to grow in your walk with God? 
You spend time in prayer every single day. The Bible says, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. And I'm not talking about over your Wheaties either, right? I'm talking about prayer, intimacy. Prayer is how I talk to God, amen? If I, if I, if I was engaged to my wife, and every time she came in the room, I put my hand over my mouth. I never talked to her. We wouldn't be engaged very long, right? I mean, I need to have that intimate relationship with her, where I'm sharing my heart with her, where I I'm, I'm, have that intimacy with her. Prayer to me is one of the most intimate things I do. And then, how does he speak to me? He speaks to me through his word. I pray, I admit, Lord, here's my heart. I pour my heart out to you. And then I open up his word and he responds back to me. This is a love letter, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth, right? I mean, this is it right here. This is God's love letter to us. And he's given this to us because he wants to minister to us. He's a loving and a merciful and a gracious God. He knows what's best for us. And he gives this to us. He says, here, I love you guys. Here's my roadmap. Here's how to live life. And then through fellowship, you know, forsake not the gathering yourselves together. The more we grow and the more we know Him, the more we'll understand His heart, the more we'll understand His will, the more easily we'll hear, hear His voice. The more easily we'll just be, Lord, will again, whisper at you like that. Yes, Lord. Right? Sometimes my walk's been so bad, He's screaming in my ear and I don't hear it. Right? But God wants us to have that intimate fellowship with Him. But we must first understand, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need to be desperate for you. I need to stay in that right relationship with you. I thank you, Lord, that you made that atonement for me. The more we're convicted by our sin, the more we grow in our walk with the Lord, the more we're going to desire to have that relationship never wane. It's going to break your heart when you sin. It's going to just grieve you. It's going to grip you. You're not going to walk around in ignorance to your sin like these guys. Oh, I guess I sinned six months. I didn't realize it, right? I mean, when you're walking close with God, you're going to know when you've sinned. I'll end with this. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great preacher of 100 years ago, was walking across the street in London, England. And they didn't have cars then. They had buggies going by and people on horses. And he's out in the middle of the street and he stopped dead in his tracks. He's walking with two other guys. And they kept walking. He stood out there with his head down. And they said, what? No. Finally, after a few minutes, he comes walking across the street and he said, Pastor Spurgeon, you know, you almost got run over by about four or five bucks. What are you doing standing out in the middle of the street? He said, you know what? There was a thought that entered my mind that was sin. And it broke my fellowship with God. And I didn't want to take one more step till I got right with him. You know, that's the kind of walk that we should have and desire. Amen? That we're not walking around ignorant to our sin, but we're so in love with the Lord that when we do anything that breaks our fellowship with him, it drives us to our knees and says, to, to the point saying, Lord, please forgive me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you paid the price. Lord, that our sin has been paid for. And Lord, I just pray if there's anybody here tonight that doesn't know you, that Father God may, maybe knows about you, maybe has heard of you, maybe knows some facts about who you are, but has never accepted you as Lord and Savior. Lord, just open their eyes to their need for you. Help them to see, Lord, that you've paid the price, that the sin's been paid for, and you're reaching out to them. You desire to know them in an intimate and a personal way. Lord, just simply, all they have to do is just pray a prayer and just say, I, Lord, forgive me, and you will forgive them. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray that we would have a desire to have an intimate relationship with you like never before. Lord, that we would be desperate for you, that we would hunger to walk just in the fullness of your spirit. Lord, and I just thank you and praise you for each person who's here tonight. Just pour out your blessings upon them, upon their homes, Lord. Use us for your glory. We continue to lift up Santa Cruz County to you, Father. I pray for revival in this county. And help us, Lord, to be salt and light, to reach out to a world that's so desperate for you. We thank you, Lord, and praise you and worship your name. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.